This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello again. This is the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018, Episode 3. Today's discussion is Part 2 of a two-part series discussing Rayview Starlight and the context of the real-life Takarazuka Rayview. This is the second video in which we trace this influence through the first three episodes of Rayview Starlight. If you have not seen the first video, go back and watch that first, as we will make frequent reference to it. That video is spoiler-free. This one is full of spoilers for episodes one through three of Rayview Starlight. As you probably picked up in the last video, Takarazuka Review and its conventions and aesthetics can be seen numerous places in anime. Some anime take direct inspiration, such as Le Chevalier d'Eon, Revolutionary Girl Utena, or The Rose of Versailles, which is actually one of the Review's most famous productions. Shoujo manga and anime also frequently incorporate the idea of a girl who exhibits some masculine traits or signals and is adored by other women for it. This shows up even in series that are about shoujo manga rather than based on it, as it is too prevalent a phenomena to ignore. What I think is important to note is that Rayview Starlight is fundamentally different than the examples that we just noted. They are all based on the type of productions that the Takarazuka Rayview puts on, while Rayview Starlight takes inspiration from the training process for the Rayview itself. It's not about what is on stage, but what is off stage, making the entire affair a lot more self-aware. And, rather than an endorsement of the Rayview system, this means Rayview Starlight can potentially be a critique of that system instead. Now, the first obvious parallels are the aesthetic choices meant to recall the Takarazuka Music School. Training sequences are likely to look the same regardless, but the gray uniforms with red bow ties seem to be a pretty direct reference. Likewise, with the military uniforms used during the underground auditions, there are also the icons that represent the various troops, like flower, moon, and snow, which incorporate a stylized version of their kanji into the design. Our symbol for the Seisho Music Academy appears to be doing the same thing. One thing that is not the same, and yet is preserved symbolically, is that split between Otoko-yaku and Musume-yaku that divides the girls in the actual Takarazuka Music School. This usually happens after the first year, and those chosen for the male roles cut their hair short to reflect this. You can see the difference plainly in their promotional video. This has not happened in Rayview Starlight, nor is any class divide implied for the actresses. However, Male role positioning is frequently invoked to imply leading or prevailing over another in a scene. Sometimes this is even accompanied by symbolic costume change, as in Maya and Claudine's practice. More frequently, one character will dip the other, assuming the male role of leading in a dance. Remember, only the Otoko Yaku players can be the top star. 
taking on the lead in these dancing metaphors means being the one whose star is ascendant in that moment. We've had frequent juxtapositions of this as well, showing a change in fortune between two characters in two different scenes. I mentioned last time as well that in addition to a top star, every troupe has a lead musumeyaku, the female role player. While there is only one top star, these two together are seen as above and separate from the rest. In Revu Starlight, we are meant to understand from the beginning that Maya and Claudine are these two that loom above the others. They are visually distinct from the others in that fantastic introduction sequence, they are frequently lauded by the other girls, and of course, they played the lead to roles in the previous year's production of Starlight. Now, to the rest, Claudine and Maya may seem similar in their superlativeness. When two things stand far enough above you, it can be difficult to determine which is taller, and just you yourself know that they're quite a bit taller than you. However, up on those heights, it is often much clearer who is above whom. Even without the scoreboard in the underground auditions, we can tell just from Claudine's behavior that she is well aware of the gulf between them. Maya gets all of her focus and brings out the little bit of insecurity that we see in her. Once we see Maya's performance in the underground auditions, we should have little confusion about her being well above the rest. However, Maya's position as the heir apparent to top stardom is actually first invoked in that introduction sequence and the way that position zero is tied to this top star idea. That scene is introducing our main players and most of their banter is friendly or teasing. They could be any set of schoolmates socializing before class. As soon as Maya comes on the scene though, everyone's focus changes. Her actual introduction comes as she stops behind position zero, literally casting a shadow over this coveted spot. The change that comes over the rest is immediate. Maya's presence erases their status as classmates and turns them into competitors. Now, position zero is a little bit more of an idle thing, where the lead is centered among the rest of the girls. However, markings for center stage are definitely a thing in the theater, and it will also mark the position that the lead will bow at the curtain call. Traditionally, the cast bows at the end of a production in the reverse order of their billing. The star will bow last and will bow centered. Thus, claiming position zero and claiming top star are going to be strongly related concepts for Rayview Starlight. This is reinforced by the color choice. Both the tiara representing top star and the tape representing position zero are pinkish purplish in color. Now, I do not know if this is invoked on purpose, but I will go ahead and mention it. Remember the code of conduct that governs all things related to the Takarazuko review? The one that governs on and off stage behavior of fan and performer alike? It is known as the Violet Code. Is it possible that this choice of color references this? Well, whether it does or doesn't, the tiara and its purplish light can be seen as both the goal of the stage girls and representative of the system that they compete within. Little stars of purplish light are basically all over this anime. You can go through almost any scene in the normal classroom setting or the grounds and see little purple highlights throughout the background. Both the desire for top star and the restrictions of the system loom over every waking moment. Even moments that should be relaxing or sufficiently off stage are still haunted by this violet twinkle. It's inescapable, just like the code, just like the purpose behind all their effort. Only one can stand on top. Only one can stand at position zero. Karen's character seems poised to try to overturn the situation. She wants them all to stand on the stage as stars. If we tie these two ideas together then, 
We might also think of Karin as being in direct conflict with the system itself, along with its restrictive code. Lastly, I want to talk about that dreamlike fantasy world that was part of Takarazuka's original marketing. The theater is often home to fantastical representations of stories, or an idealization of actual historical events or mythological tales. What's more, owing to the restrictions of the medium, dramatic performance must necessarily be exaggerated. Animation actually shares this in common with stage productions. In animation, all of a character's actions or emotions must be communicated with a scant few lines shifting or changing shape. Exaggeration of facial features and gestures and voice inflection are all necessary to overcome the lack of detail. A live performance has a similar problem. Once you are a dozen or so rows away from the front of the stage, subtle facial expressions are completely undetectable. Pull back to the balcony, and it might be a challenge to tell if an actor is smiling or frowning or neither. Thus, actors must gesticulate and speak and move in ways that they never would in real life. Their performance must be dramatic and over the top, or else it will not be communicated to most of the audience at all. In theater then, like in anime, this exaggeration is embraced as part of the medium. If gestures and expressions need to be magnified, then you might as well do the same to the costumes, and to the sets, and to the lighting and the music, to all of it. By exaggerating every element a little bit, they actually all synthesize together. They form a cohesive whole. The result is a fantastical simulacrum of reality, a stylized stand-in for the real thing. That is, a dream. Thus, throughout Rayview Starlight, we frequently have dreamlike sequences, or characters daydreaming, or actually dreaming. The girls are especially tired the day after their underground auditions, almost as though they were carrying out these fights in their sleeping, dreaming hours. What's more, the artifice of the stage is presented to us almost as though it were a type of magic. Our stage girls check many boxes of magical girl anime what with costume-changing transformation sequences, individualized weapons and costume details, each girl having a theme color and gemstones that represent them, and so on, which is to say nothing of the frequent magical girl theme of friendship versus rivalry. However, their magic is actually the magic of the stage. The transformation sequence is not the sprouting of magical ability and costume from within, but is the result of a mechanized external process, an assembly line that produces scores of identical garments in the same way this academy, perhaps, produces scores of identical girls. Each girl does not have a signature transformation, but rather a signature spotlight sequence that serves as her introduction. The magic they invoke in their fights is not some mystical power, but is a magic-like manipulation of stage elements, causing platforms and props and lighting to shift in order to aid them in their fight. That is to say that each of these fights is a performance unto itself. You may have noticed that they have unique names, like Review of Desire or Review of Pride, and each has its own dueling song as well. They are fights, yes, they are definitely whacking each other with weapons, but it is much more a contest of performing than martial prowess. Hence, the girl who can manipulate the stage and all its elements most successfully has the upper hand in the actual fighting as well. They are less all-out brawls and more of a shared dream, much like the shared fantasy of Takarazuka Review and, indeed, of all theatrical productions. Do you understand? That's good. By the way, nothing in my research of Takarazuka explains our giraffe friend. 
I have some thoughts on him, but we have obviously not addressed everything yet anyway, so we will come back to it. Hopefully these two videos together will help us all get centered on the series and prepare us for further discussion going forward. Until then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.